This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health addictions and holistic care community to talk about different issues and treatment modalities. Now, guest opinions are their own, and some content might be triggering. With that, today's guest is Dan and Lisa Kelko, who are both clinical directors at Nomina, registered sex therapists, relationship counselors, and married. And they are the perfect ones to talk with us about the Gottman Method for couples therapy and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They give us some really great advice based on what the relationship masters do and what the relationship disasters do. So let's welcome Lisa and Dan. Lisa, you guys aren't together, but for all our viewers, you're together. <laughs> you're married. We're still together. We're still married, <laughs> but we're just in different locations. <laughs> all right. Well, as registered sex therapists and relationship counselors, you're perfect to talk to us about the Gottman Method. Um, Dan, maybe you can start off because I like what you said off camera, masters and disasters. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that's great about the Gottman Method is that there's some actual tangible things that couples can look out for and do in terms of helping their relationship or, or strengthening. Every relationship can be strengthened. Some relationships need to be repaired. And the Gottman Method is really great about offering you kind of really notable things to look out for um, and things to do in order to try to help repair or strengthen that relationship. And so when I alluded to the masters and the disasters, um, the Gottmans did a lot of research on their couples therapy. They literally watched people for years. They would bring them into a, a like a, a department that had cameras and they would watch these people for 24 hours and they would break down their behaviors and how they, the body language and the words that they used. Uh, and they created two categories. There would be the relationship masters, those people who would do well. And those people were predicted to stay together. And the research shows that something like 90% of them did stay together. And then there was the relationship disasters. And those are the ones that didn't stay together. And there's a bunch of very definite behavioral stuff that you can observe in both groups that can predict with a really high rate of accuracy who's going to be a master and who's going to be a disaster. I think I saw something about this because I know with my first marriage, uh, disaster. <laughs> but we didn't, we had a lack of respect. And, and that you could see that and the therapist could see that in the counseling. But so, so what are some of the red flags? So um, the Gottman's just kind of categorized it. So I'll talk about the disasters, and Lisa can talk about the masters. And so, <laughs> and so they have a lot of really nice terminology for that. And so what they said was the things that the mass that the disasters would do is called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So very kind of scary imagery there. But there are four things that they noticed that all of the couples that broke apart after a certain amount of time did. And one of those things was criticism. So one partner criticizing the other or both partners criticizing each other. So verbally attacking. And this is the key, the personality or character of the other person. And so arguments are very normal and actually healthy in relationships. Couples that don't argue don't stay together. Argument is a very normal and healthy and necessary part of a relationship. But the difference is when a healthy couple, so, so maybe I'll just stick with the, the disaster part. So a disaster will criticize the person. They'll make critical mentions, comments about the other person. You are a bad 
cook. You are a bad father. You're a bad wife. You suck at driving. Those are personal attacks that people in the disaster category would use when they were having an argument or a disagreement. So that's one thing, criticism to look out for. The other was contempt. Sorry, Lisa, you wanted to say something? Well, I was just going to add what the masters would do in contrast. So in contrast, you know, some of the things the masters would do is they talk about the things that they saw going really well. They weren't afraid to ask for what they wanted. They weren't afraid to be vulnerable as more of that anecdote to criticism. And so it is something to kind of know that there is a chart that Gottman's offer on their website, which, you know, we'll post at the end of this as well, so that people can have access to that. The masters are the people who are really engaging with their partners. They're bidding for that connection. They're, you know, they're not afraid of, you know, their response in the same way. Yeah, for sure. And and that's kind of the opposite of that. And there's a there's a bridge, right? So if you're finding yourself in the criticism phase, there's a few things that you can do to help yourself with that. And one of the best ones to do is focus on yourself. I know that's kind of awkward from a relationship therapist to say in a couple, focus on yourself. But during an argument, it's really, really important to say, I am feeling, or when you say something, this is how I react, or this is what I notice, because then it no longer becomes about the other person. It becomes about yourself and your own experience. And as much as we love and might be connected with our partners, we're not mind readers. And so it's very important that we don't suppose or guess what's going on with them. We say, when you say, uh, when you tell me that um, my fish is dry, uh, it makes me feel like I'm not able to provide a nice meal for you. It makes me feel inadequate. And that's a way to change away from saying, crit- being critical and saying, well, your fish was dry. And you go, oh, yeah, well, you suck at the laundry. You can't load a dishwasher. That's where it starts to escalate and degrade in terms of that. But if you go, that made me feel really sad or it made me feel really inadequate, it's really hard to get away from that and still continue to, to attack the other person. And that kind of levels the playing. When you say, I feel, it's important to follow it with a feeling statement. I feel sad. I feel hurt. I feel angry. I feel happy. These are feelings. Oftentimes we hear couples will say, I feel that you suck. You know, we're kind of, you can feel that way, but that's not actually a feeling, you know, and we're just using the I feel statement in order to project a sentiment onto the other person. But when we're looking at the masters, they really do introduce feeling statements. They introduce that gentle communication or that way of approaching it that allows it, you know, what the Gottman's called the gentle startup as a way of meeting the criticism with something that expresses a feeling. And it really just takes it down a level so that you're you're trying to kind of, you know, your person might be up here with criticism and you're going to meet them down here with that gentle startup, meeting them where they're at, building them and inviting them back down to that, that place of calm alongside you, which is a great way to diffuse an argument if that's what you're actually wanting to do. Um, and I mean, unless, of course, maybe you're really just impassionate about what you're you're about to explore but it's a great kind of counterbalancing point when we're looking at those four horsemen i love working for you guys i have learned so much that when my husband has a little comes to blows i can say not only i feel but i can say i feel because this happened when i was younger i've got some old ideas and it you know and go real deep with it and he does the same thing with me now oh that's so beautiful it's so amazing. Yeah. All right. What's next on the list? So the next one is um, contempt. So contempt is kind of an escalation of criticism. 
And contempt is attacking the sense of self of that person. So you are a bad person because you overcooked the fish. And that is one of the worst ones. Out of all of the four, they noticed that that, if they noticed that one in the couples they were observing, that one was the greatest predictor of separation more than any of the other ones. And that's kind of really attacking the core of the person that you're with. And so people that did that often did one partner did it to the other, or they did it to each other during arguments or disagreements. And that's where people, it's hard to recover from that, um, that attack on self, because it's not about the fish. It becomes about something more. And it's about satisfaction with a person and then putting that person beneath you. And so you take an upper position and that person takes a lower position. And that creates a very poor power dynamic within the relationship, which should be somewhere balanced, right? It's not always going to be perfectly balanced, but it should be somewhere balanced. Unfortunately, when that happens, that all signs point to kind of divorce or separation. And Lisa, how did the masters handle this? Well, and so as Gottman would say, it's about building a culture of appreciation in your relationship. And so the masters, what we found is that they will actually be bidding for connection in other ways, or they'll be communicating not only affection, but respect to their partner. So looking at that, a lot of the information will be, you know, indicating, but, but you know, they'll oftentimes be expressing that, that appreciation with, you know, thank you for picking that up for me. You know, really thank you for making supper. The fish might be a little dry. We're just going to exclude that part. And we're really appreciative of the act that it took for the other person in order to make dinner. You know, thanks so much for doing that for me. I really enjoyed the conversation we had at dinner or I enjoyed the act that you went out of your way to make that for me, as opposed to focusing on the negatives. It's also something where, you know, when we start to think about that positive mindset, when we look at neurobiology of, of, you know, our our thoughts and our processes, when we start to fuse with these positive experiences, we create an opportunity for our partner to also fuse with us and these positive experiences. So they have not only this neurobiology of love and attraction happening, but they also have that positive reward reinforcement happening within them that makes them want to cook me dinner the next time, or makes them want to do something positive for me. And so the masters have been found to be doing a lot of these things unconsciously, subconsciously. And, you know, when we're looking at relationships that get stuck, we will actually encourage as part of an exercise for them to go and practice this intentionally for a period of time. So sometimes Daniel and I will suggest to a couple, I want you to go out and I want you to spend the next two weeks being overly demonstrative with your partner. Of course, we always want to make sure the other partner is aware of what's happening, but trying to break a habit and trying to increase some of that processing around it where, you know, we recognize it's going to feel really lame and really cheesy and over the top. And even if they dial it back 50% afterwards, they're still creating new neural pathways and new reward opportunities with their intimate partner that's trying to break the cycle, that's trying to, you know, bringing in that honeymoon phase in an intentional way and just practice mastering, you know, being appreciative and respectful of your intimate partner. Okay. Well, now back to the, back to the the, the disasters, Dan, what's next on the list? Next on the list is defensiveness. So that's where people can either victimize themselves or perceive an attack in, ter- in, a, in anticipation of an attack, uh, or when they try to reverse the blame. So um, again, going back to my super lame fish example, 
you overcooked the fish. Well, I only overcooked the fish because I had to do this other thing for you, right? It's deflecting away from the what the core concept actually is. And really, it's not about the fish. Like I said at the beginning, it's not about the fish. There's some underlying issue about what's going on. But when one of the partners starts to get defensive, that's when we can start to tell that there's a disconnect. Instead of talking about the thing that's at hand, the one partner is focusing on themselves and trying to protect themselves from either a real or perceived attack. And how do the masters handle it? So the masters are really great at taking responsibility. And, you know, when we look at, I always often try and teach acknowledgement does not necessarily mean apology because we can acknowledge like, look, the fish might be overcooked. I don't need to be Canadian and apologize for that. It doesn't have to be my fault and it doesn't have to be the other person's fault. Sometimes things are just as they are. But the masters do a great job in terms of accepting responsibility, even if it's just for a small part, in what they may have done or misstepped in creating the hurt feelings. So again, acknowledgement doesn't need to be apology for our partner's behavior. I'm not going to apologize that he overcooked the fish. It happened. I also don't want to make my lovely Daniel feel bad that he overcooked the fish. What the masters will oftentimes be noted as doing is they'll talk about themselves, their feelings, what they need. They'll talk about, you know, reaching out and, and, you know, as Sue Johnson would say, bidding for connection with what their partner is identifying. I see that you're really upset about this fish, or I'm hearing your tone is, you know, that you've had a hard day or that you're upset about it yourself. You know, is there something that we can do? Is there something I can do? Or, you know, maybe I have taken, maybe I did distract, you know, the with the fish. Maybe I did distract when somebody was cooking and say, you know, you're right, I, I did. And I'm sorry that that happened. And I'm appreciative that you made me this. And how can we kind of turn towards or make it, you know, a good supper? And, you know, just really acknowledging what the other person's efforts were, what was happening in the room, really bringing that in. The other thing that the masters do really great is they recognize their own tone because tone matters. And so when we're looking at communication, it's like, if my partner's there working and doing all these things to prepare me a supper and they're there cooking the fish and I come in and was like, so how was your day? Really? I could just put those words on paper and say, I was asking you a question. I was trying to engage you. Then I'm in my own defensive process. What the masters are recognizing, maybe my tone did come across inappropriately. Maybe I did seem harsh. Maybe I did, you know, maybe I was having a rough day and I didn't realize that. They will acknowledge that they could have had a participation or maybe their tone was off and helping to diffuse the escalation of an argument. And so in that regard, it's recognizing, oh, maybe my tone was off. I meant to say, how was your day? This is great because today, even just I I was late for this thing. And where supper prep took longer than it needed to be. And when I was talking with Lisa about it before, she was supportive and encouraging and and didn't make a big deal out of it because we know that being five or 10 minutes late about something isn't the end of the world. And really encouraging and feeling me hearing that encouragement made me feel okay to A, take care of our kids who need supper, but also attend this, which is also important because we enjoy doing this. And that's how I felt acknowledged and seen and heard and, and accepted. And that made me feel good and made me okay to not get super stressed out about what was going on, because that could easily have gone the other way. You're going to be late. I can't believe you're going to be late, right? You can get super critical, right? Or you're a bad person because your time management sucks, right? Being really like contemptuous. I'm better than you because my time management is better. And so you should just do everything that I say. It could go really poorly very easily. 
but it can also go really well and really supportively at the same time. Do you notice what he just did there? He built the culture of appreciation. I'm not going to lie. I'm sitting here on the other end of this Zoom call being like, yeah, that's right. We got this. You're so great. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, did you cook fish for dinner, Dan? <laughs> oh, <that's big>. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the funny thing is, because even as I heard that, and I'm sure it's evident in the Zoom screen, was like, I want to, I, you know, because it, what it does is it creates that reciprocal opportunity as well. When you have somebody who's there, who's really showing up in that culture of appreciation, it diffuses a lot of that angst, even within us. And it makes us want to say, oh, I really want to help that person. I want to be engaged with that person. I want to be connected with that person as opposed to pulling away. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it when people say that, oh, no, relationships should just be easy. They're not work. No, we had to put some effort into having really good, intimate, healthy relationships. Well, people are complicated. Now you put two or more people together and you just magnify that complicated, complex construction tenfold. That It's not linear. It's like everyone brings in their past. Everyone brings in the way that their personality is developed and all of the things that has happened to them, both good and bad in the past. And now you've mashed these two people together and said, Oh, by the way, this is when the Disney story ends. Cinderella's with the prince, but there's no movie about the prince and Cinderella afterwards. And so we have no idea how they got on. They just got together. And, you know, that's that's actually kind of the easy part because the biology really helps us with that. So these are the things that build a foundation of support and trust and emotional openness. Okay, what what's number four, Dan? <laughs> the last one is called is, is stonewalling. And so I like to call this one the silent treatment. So when something happens, people then they shut down or they recoil. It's, do you overcook the fish and and just like just literally like putting up a like a wall? Some people will actually put up their hand in front of their face to protect themselves from that. But that denotes disconnection. That person is no longer communicating effectively or ineffectively or any way. Uh, what is going on in that relationship. And so those people who stonewall never advance an issue. And and John Gottman said that there aren't a lot of new arguments in a relationship. They tend to repeat themselves over and over and over again. And his example, I, I was listening to one of his talks a while back. His example was his partner is a clean freak and he's a he's a messy savant. And oftentimes it's about the stuff everywhere or then the desire to have cleanliness when the other person doesn't value that as part of their personality but stonewalling prevents any kind of adaptation any kind of growth in that realm and so when the disasters stonewall the same thing happens over and over and over again the food is overcooked the food is overcooked the food is overcooked basically what the person is saying is you're a bad cook the other person is going, well, I don't even want to engage in this. I'm just going to shut down. And, and hopefully that person stops. But what actually ends up happening is the person doesn't see a reaction out of it. And it usually escalates. You're a bad cook. You're a bad cook. Oh, that makes you a bad provider. That makes you a bad father. That makes you a bad husband. It gets worse and worse and worse. And that's what we don't want. But that's what a lot of the disasters would do is they would stonewall their partner. And I, I want to acknowledge that stonewalling is oftentimes something that happens as a protection mechanism from the person who's feeling hurt or who's feeling big feelings and who doesn't know how to process that. And so oftentimes we can look at the stonewallers as being bad humans or like having this inherent 
feature that they should be able to immediately fix, you know, just through understanding this behavior and, and removing it. But in fact, it's oftentimes developed over a complex layered process or really deeply entrenched behavioral responses to various life circumstances. So we will oftentimes see people who are flooded from trauma responses become, you know, very avoidant or become very stonewalled in that just their their brain is offline. They are just totally flooded with emotions or feelings. Sometimes they don't know how to engage. You know, they're there, they're there. And part of the reason they're there is because they're trying to hold space. They're doing the best they can and they just don't know how to move beyond that. Or sometimes their silence is a self-protection. It is a way of them trying to still be in the moment without flipping their lid or doing something more harmful. And so it's not to say that we, I want to be very careful. I know Daniel and I both want to be very careful to say, we don't want to pathologize these, you know, these disasters as being bad people. In fact, there are people who are doing the best they can given their own maps, given their own kind of understanding how they've learned to grow and and participate in relationships through their childhood development or other experiences. And so that's where, you know, we want to kind of help them understand and their partners understand how they can support each other differently. And that's where, you know, everybody has the potential to become masters in their relationships. So it's not like everybody's stuck in this kind of like linear path of like, oh my gosh, we're a relationship disaster. That's it. We're over. Rather, you know, looking at the masters for stonewalling, it's about understanding masters can repair. Everybody has the potential to work on repairing. It's that how do we start to master trying something different? And that means we have to recognize what we're doing and then start to practice something else. And so once we can start to have that conversation, we can recognize what's happening. Oh my gosh, my partner stonewalled or I'm stonewalling. How do I want to diffuse that? And so the anecdote to stonewalling is really about just trying to find ways to self-soothe. It's about taking that break, kind of doing something to distract ourselves, to just kind of help us reconnect in our bodies. And that's where we start to go through this process of saying, okay, you know, I flip my lid in our house. We've got our little Dan Siegel hand signal of like, nope, nope, I'm here. Like I'm giving you the high five. Don't bother talking to me because I ain't listening. But it's also about that place of saying like, hey, I just need a timeout. I need an adult timeout. I need to go, you know, calm myself down. I'm here. And one of the things that we teach kind of, you know, dovetailing from the Gottman work is setting a time frame for that timeout. So it's not an open-ended kind of place of like, okay, I'm leaving. That's it. And we leave the other person to their own kind of curiosities of like, what happened? Are they coming back? What are they coming back? What's going on? You know, and just left with their own emotions. Rather, we're giving them an opportunity to say, I need a timeout. I'm going to go put myself in a timeout and I'm going to come back and I'll connect with you in 15 minutes. We honor that 15 minutes and say, look, I'm still really peeved. I need a half an hour. We honor that half an hour. And if it's like, no, I'm still, can we talk about this tomorrow? We want to have an intentional acknowledgement of like, okay, well, we're not going to leave this open-ended till tomorrow. We're going to say tomorrow, 3 p.m. when we're both done work and we have the bandwidth to be able to dedicate to this conversation Can we have this conversation? So what we know is a lot of the masters will do that. People who really speak with intention, they recognize when they're about to flip their lids, they calm themselves down in a way, they practice self-soothing. And truthfully, we're finding more and more, you know, that this is a a smaller 
subsection of the populations, you know, and so in that many people get heated, many people have, you know, elevated arguments, many people and granted, we have a self selecting audience and people are coming because they need help. But, <clears throat> but the masters are people who may have started off as the disasters, and who've taken the steps to start to practice these skills. So I want to offer that to everybody to say everybody has the potential to master these skills. It's really about the skills, not necessarily about the fundamental human. I'm one, I went from disaster to master. It took a lot of work, but yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the other part to it too, is just like, you know, when we start to practice those active listening skills, we start to see, we nod our heads, you know, we're giving the the cues that we're following along. We're not just staring off into space, you know, we're there kind of engaged with our person you know, having that connected experience. And that can be a really hard, vulnerable process when we're in a heated moment. And sometimes that's where we need to check in with ourselves and say, okay, as Daniel said at the start, what do I need? It sounds really selfish to be like, I'm in this coupled relationship and I'm focusing about what I need. Oh, aren't I so selfish? No, you're human. And that's actually what's going to give you the greatest strength as a fellow human in a coupled relationship. It's looking at for what are your needs as well. You know, the oxygen mask descends, put on your own life mask first. That's what we want to teach our couples to do as well. One tip that I want to leave people with, then, and anyone can do this. And like Lisa said, it can be in any type of relationship. And I would challenge people to do it in all of their relationships is spend two weeks when you interact with people starting off and asking as many questions as you can. We don't tend to ask questions about people. We tend to listen to another person talk and then figure out how we can add to that by making statements. But instead, if you ask questions of your partner, of your friend, of your brother, of your mother, of your coworker, and you ask a lot of questions, you'll, I think you'll notice how that relationship will change because being inquisitive about another person, inquisitive about another person creates inquisitive nature on the, on, on the return. And that creates closeness and connection. And it also improves communication. So just ask questions. Just start asking people questions. How? And not just how was the weather, but like started, like, obviously you have to take a list of the person you're talking to. Don't just randomly talk to the person on the bus and ask them how their trauma was when they were young. But just start asking questions about how they are and what they're doing and what they like to do and, and what they're planning on doing and what their plans are. These are all safe questions that you can ask people, even at work. Hey, what do you want to do when you retire? Great advice. Anything else that you guys want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I did want to add. So one of the things that we notice uh, with in the master's group and then con uh, conversely in the disasters group is these two things called positive sentiment override and negative sentiment override. And the way I like to describe these, they're kind of like reservoirs. And so when you have a positive sentiment override for your partner, and you're, and you're doing your thing, and that means you've got a lot of really good relationship. It kind of gets you through. Your partner comes in, and they are upset about work or traffic or something's not good, and they lash out. And that lashing out comes towards, let's say, me. I'm able to use that reservoir of positive sentiment override and go, hey, she's just probably having a bad day, or something must have happened, and I'm going to give her a few minutes to to calm down, think about what's going on, and then I'm going to see what I can do about it if I can help in any way or if there's just some support that is needed. But that sentiment override, the positive sentiment override, insulates me 
because it's not about me. I don't take it personally, but I have this huge reservoir, hopefully, of of previous experiences that go, you know, it's it's not about me and it's not about her. It's about something else. And I'm going to just try to hold space for that. And it doesn't result in an argument because it very well could. The disasters, on the other hand, have a negative sentiment override. And so even a positive thing that could be said, like in, in, a, in a joking way or in a, in a lighthearted way, now becomes perceived as an attack. Like, oh, I see you managed to miss the laundry hamper again, right? In a funny way, right? You're, uh, or in like a kind of like a kind of a jesting way, or even something like, hey, let's uh, go upstate and see your parents or something. That could be reacted in a way that would be very negative. Like, I don't want to see them. Why are you always pushing me? Getting really amped up and negative. And so that negative reservoir is the thing that overrides any kind of interaction that you might be having regardless of what the tone of that reaction is. And so that's what we want to try to build in couples. And that's why we often have exercises where we create that positivity. And sometimes it sounds silly and sometimes it sounds tacky, but we want to create an overwhelming reservoir of positivity that gets people through some of those more negative times that almost always have nothing to do with that person. Lisa, do you have anything to say in closing? I I do. I mean, one of the things I wanted to kind of acknowledge is that Although Gottman's work specifically is is kind of more hallmarked based on its its pioneering evidence around work with couples, it really is a roadmap and a, a, an opportunity for work in any relationships. You know, and so really the the focus of Gottman's work is about disarming conflict in verbal communication. And, you know, just creating that culture and that understanding of empathy and respect within a relationship. So I really want to just acknowledge that this does not necessarily need to just apply to your intimate coupling. This can be across any relationship, whether it be with a parent-child, whether it be with, you know, a person at work, whether it be in any sort of, you know, other sort of sphere. And taking that, as Daniel was saying, that positive and negative kind of, um, you know, reservoir that can happen. One of the things that we try and teach more globally within our our work in relationship rescues and communication building is approaching things with a generous assumption. So even if you don't have that reservoir of knowledge about a person or you haven't had those opportunities to get those positive experiences to have that overriding um, that overriding sense, when we're looking at using these principles across all relationships, we can just start with a generous assumption that People are doing the best that they can. Hey, maybe they are having a hard day. Maybe this isn't about me. Maybe I can ask the direct question. Is there something that I've done? Is there something about me? Maybe I just want to kind of take that curious empathy or that kind of opportunity to just do some guided, gentle exploration around it with that generous assumption that maybe they're just, maybe they're just having a hard day. Maybe it's not about me, you know, and allowing for that just to be. And it's amazing how much that can shift the culture of relationships. Because at the end of the day, what we believe is human beings want to connect and they want to attach. And there's so many things happening in life right now that are really preventing them from having the fundamental skills and opportunities and resources to do so. So taking these principles and using them across all relationships and just seeing what happens, you know, whether it be queer, straight, you know, bi-curious, you know, partnered, coupled, friendships, workplace settings, you know, just, just try being, try some of these tips and, you know, and seeing what it's like. Thank you guys.